Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the triumphant entry into Jerusalem portrayed in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is adorned with the standard symbols of a Roman procession. The crowds, evoking bread and circuses. The donkey, a mockery of Caesar Augustus, who elevated his stallion to the rank of consul. The gossip in the city, who is this, evoking the image of a rising star, a general returning to Rome in victory, suddenly thrust onto center stage. But unlike other generals, Jesus did not enter the city to win its favor, but to destroy it through his defeat, transferring all power and victory to the throne of his father. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 6 to 11. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 347 of the Bible as Literature podcast, We have mentioned many times in the past, Richard, especially in discussions surrounding the prophecy of Ezekiel, where it's so blatant, that Scripture co-opts military imagery. It co-opts the imagery of the gods in the ancient world, the things that are impressive in human eyes, the things that trigger human imagination. It takes these images of worldly power and uses them for its own purpose. It doesn't mean that violence is being glorified or power is being glorified. On the contrary, it is being usurped and ascribed to the one power who holds all things in the palm of his hand. And as we enter into Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew in this ultimate confrontation between the power of human beings and the singular power of the Father of Jesus Christ, we have this beautiful allusion to Psalm 118, which puts this question of trust on center stage. The real trust that matters is the trust of Jesus Christ in the will of his Father, his trust that his Father will vindicate him and fulfill his purpose in what looks like a pretty scary situation for Jesus. Yeah, the scary situation, it's predicated on the problem of power where we have Jesus entering into Jerusalem and we have the Romans versus the Jews. Does ownership of Jerusalem belong to A, Romans, or B, Jews, or C, none of the above? Two of your kids are fighting over a toy It belongs to me. No, it's mine. I had it first, but I didn't get a chance to play with it yet. You were hogging it. Yeah, but I wasn't done playing with it. 
there's an assumption there going on that it either belongs to child A or belongs to child B. It either belongs to the Democrats or it belongs to the Republicans. It either belongs to the socialists or it belongs to the nationalists, whatever you want to say. And God solves it the same way as any wise parent, mother or father, solves it, which is, no, it belongs to me, and I'm letting both of you use it. And if you don't believe that, I'll take it away and I'll prove that it belongs to me. And then both children stop fighting because they realize that the air was sucked out of the entire supposition of the argument that it belongs to either A or B without thinking about C, the parent. This question has been important throughout chapter 20 and now 21 of Matthew. Again, we have heard that the last will be first and the first will be last, referring to the demotion of the disciples who would sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Jesus is struggling to get it through their thick skulls that this means they will be under much heavier pressure and burden than anyone else. And they misunderstand, and he's forced to pick up two new recruits. What's great about these recruits is that they do what Jesus says. And going into battle, when you yourself are reciting Psalm 118 in order to stay focused on your trust in the command of your Father— it's not a foregone conclusion that it's easy for Jesus to do what his dad is telling him to do. Remember that. So this recitation of Psalm 118 that we'll get to in verse 9 is critical. While you're dealing with that pressure, it's important to know that your lieutenants are on point. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Remember, these are the two <laughs> scrappy blind men from the side of the road. These are the new recruits. These are the militia of Jesus Christ in his conquest of Jerusalem, and they did exactly as he asked, setting the stage for Jesus to do exactly as his father has asked of him. And it's important here, typically people think only of the donkey. It's the donkey and the colt, which makes Zechariah functional here in Matthew. It's a direct reference. I remember when we were doing this in seminary, when we took an intro to Matthew, our professor made a joke about this, like, how do you do that? How actually do you sit on an ass and the colt full of an ass? Do you, like, lay across them so that you're on both at the same time or something like this? You know, Hebrew poetry often uses these couplets where you'll use different words to explain the same thing. And here, Matthew is interpreting this literally where these two disciples are taking two animals to Jesus. So this is only to express that this is the fulfillment of this particular verse in Jesus's entry into Jerusalem so that we will import the imagery of Zechariah into this depiction of Jesus's entry. This thing about the two blind men and Father Paul's commentary was really enlightening 
for understanding this. I think we should continue to read that these two are precisely those ones whose eyes were opened because they wanted Jesus to open their eyes. And we realize in Matthew's contrast, the opening of the eyes does not predict that the person is going to then follow on the correct path. They can follow any path they want. Their eyes are open now. But these ones chose to remain on that path. They became instruments of fulfilling this prophecy because they only focused on fulfilling what the prophet said and what Jesus commanded them to do. The fact that they did what Jesus taught them, what Jesus commanded them, and they did it, this is the fulfillment of the opening of the eyes. You know, you and I, Father, talk about judgment. The opening of the eyes is not the judgment. The opening of the eyes is the grace. And then what they do with the grace, that's the question, that's the judgment. The crowds are not a sign of success. This is not about winning large numbers of people to clap for you or to pay the bills for an edifice. This is about Jesus's confrontation with the princes and sons of men. This is about the doing of his father's will. And most of the time in Matthew and in the other gospels, the crowds are a problem. Their value here is in, again, the military symbolism. I encourage all of you to go back and read the historical accounts of the march of Julius Caesar into Rome at the fall of the Republic, when he marched in victory with his soldiers. When you read the account, especially those of you who are from the Eastern Orthodox tradition or the Byzantine Catholic tradition, you are familiar with our custom of processions and symbolism liturgically. When you read those accounts, you understand that the procession of the cross is a replacement for those processions. It's the same procession. And that's why the capitulation to the Roman Empire at different periods in the history of the early church was problematic because people would get confused. They would see the exaltation of the cross and then start singing about the emperor. So we have to understand, as I said at the beginning, that Scripture co-opts images, metaphors, symbols that are impressive to human beings and redeploys them in its own way. Anyone in Roman society hearing this text would understand that we're talking about an alternative to Augustus. I mean, ultimately Julius. We always say Julius Caesar because he's the reference in the way that Abraham is the reference for biblical people. But for the Roman, every Caesar is Julius Caesar, no matter what his name is. That's the point. It's a dynasty. So this is truly the undoing of Caesar as much as it is the undoing of the synagogue. Confusion, I think, is the correct word because the crowds are so easily confused and they're so easily misled on their own way of taking what Jesus says and doing what they want with it. Because remember I said there's three options about who power belongs to. You eliminate Rome. Okay, 
if you think it's just A or B, then you think, oh, well, Jesus shows that it doesn't belong to Rome, therefore it belongs to the Jews. Because they, like the two bickering children, forgot that there's a third option, which is neither. And this is the question. This is what everyone forgets. This is why Paul had to write the letter to the Galatians, because the whole dispute was, we're circumcised. We have grace. No, we're uncircumcised. We have grace. And what did Paul have to say? Only God hands out grace. Neither of you own grace. Okay? This is what happens when we say, ours is the true church. No, ours is the true church. No, ours is the true church. We have God's favor. No, we have God's favor. Only God possesses the true church. Only God possesses favor, and only God delivers favor to whom he wants to deliver his favor. These crowds are going to think that if Jesus fails, well, then we just have to find another leader of the Jews, because obviously it belongs to the Jews, rather than understanding that Jesus's defeat is not proof whether it's A or B, but in fact that it's C, that power does not belong to human beings, but only to God. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And your comment, Richard, is so applicable when we hear this text with Psalm 118. And remember, Jesus is the one who prays Psalm 118. The psalm in the ancient cult is the prayer of the king, because there was no distinction between church and state. That's a modern understanding of civil society. And I'm not making a positive statement or a negative statement about the separation of church and state. I'm not interested in an ideological discussion because scripture subverts both the religious institution and the state. That's its value. So whether you separate them or join them, they're undermined by the authority of the gospel. And in Psalm 118, there is a tension There is a problem, specifically the authority, the tyranny of the princes and sons of men, and the one who sits on the throne of David is praying to God and asking him for victory. He's asking him to support him. He is beseeching him. And it's at this point in the psalm, in verse 26, that we hear, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from that point through the rest of the text, it is ascribing all thanksgiving and all power to the everlasting God. So it's a kind of hymn about the overthrow of Caesar. We're going to overthrow the princes and sons of men. And once and for all, the power of the God of Abraham will be consolidated in the crucifixion. Chapter 1 makes it absolutely clear that Jesus is not the genetic descendant of David. So when we say son of David, that cannot be what it means. We know that son of David only means that we're talking about the shepherd David, who trusted in God alone to offer victory not in the later David, who used his own power to his own end. Now, 
when the people say the son of David, they think the same way as the modern-day superstitious Zionist who thinks that the boundaries of the kingdom of David need to be reestablished on earth and recognized by the UN before the second coming can, like all this kind of weird fundamentalism. That's how they think about it. But this is how these people were thinking about it, too. <laughs> fundamentalism is not new. This was exactly what the crowds are thinking, too. He came in order to give Israel what they wanted, to prove that the ball belonged to Israel all along and that Rome just took it from them. No. Jesus is coming to show that the ball belongs to God and he gives it to whoever he wants to give it to or take it away from both of them. Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew word, Hoshana, which means save, save in the highest. They're looking for salvation and this is a military salvation. Now, oftentimes, modern-day Christians, when they talk about salvation, they talk like it's some theological abstract concept. But when enacting it, they want this society to be saved from secularism, from Islam, from atheism, from socialism. That's what they want. They want to say, Hosanna, save O son of David, who sits in the White House in Washington, D.C., save us from the tyranny of the non-believers, of the people who believe differently from us, the people who want to arrest power, to prove that the power is rightfully ours. They will not say, we believe in a king that was not elected by the people for the people, of the people. We believe in God's representative on earth who shows us that power belongs to God alone, exclusively, solely, and he offers it to those he wants and then takes it back away from them. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lest in Matthew we become like the scribes and the Pharisees who are more afraid of the mob than of the Torah, God forbid, lest we become like Caesar who exploits the mob with bread and circuses in order to build up his glory, God forbid. May it never be so. Hear Psalm 118, the Lord is for me, I will not fear, what can man do to me? This is Jesus praying on David's throne. It's now the Lord's throne. It's been reclaimed for its original purpose as the throne of a lowly shepherd. The Lord is for me among those who help me, therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. This is Jesus praying in the story and saying, look, I'm not interested in pleasing men, as Paul said in Galatians. I have only one person to please, my Father. That is my purpose, is to please my Father. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in human beings. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in 
princes. I'm not interested in the people. I'm not interested in human beings. I don't care about the crowds. I am not interested in Caesar or the rulers of the synagogue. They are all afar min afar in Genesis. They are dust to dust. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. This is battle imagery, Richard. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I will surely cut them off. This is where David failed. When David understood his place before God, God wrought victory for him in the midst of the land. It was God who defeated Goliath. Once David stepped up to assert his own power, he became a monster who destroyed his own people and abused them and betrayed his best friend, slept with his wife, for heaven's sake. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. Think about this, Richard, in the midst of the crowds. Are the crowds a positive metaphor? I don't think so. We have to really hear with the ears of one who is baptized in the scriptural teaching and not with worldly ears that are impressed with the glitz and the glam. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You punished me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my victory. It says salvation, but to your point, Richard, it's victory. I could go on and on. I love this psalm. I don't want to belabor the point. I encourage all of our listeners to go back and memorize Psalm 118. Don't just read it. Read it 50 times so that you can say it without having to carry a book around. It's really important. And only by imprinting those words on your heart through repetition Can you begin to hear what Matthew is saying? And more importantly, begin to see what Matthew sees in the world. Because there are people in this position who are bearing witness to the kingdom every day. And they're in places that you don't normally look because you're not formed by God's wisdom. Connecting salvation and victory is essential for understanding this word. When it's Hosanna to the son of David. You know, it just sounds nice because we don't know what Hosanna means and the Greek writers, interestingly, didn't translate it from Hebrew. But it really is grant, please, victory to the son of David. Grant victory, please, in the highest. This victory is a big assumption. What this victory means, to whom victory belongs, to whom salvation belongs. See, that's the other thing, is we get confused by this word of salvation, because salvation sounds like it's something that God has and hands out to people. Here, you're saved. Here, you're saved. You're saved. But that's not what it is. It's victory. Victory belongs to God because he's able to defeat all of his enemies. That's what's spelled out in Psalm 118. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And here Matthew is, of course, reminding us that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem from the outside. We must always keep this in mind. 
we talked a lot the last couple of days about something that was important in, you know, Torah to the Gentiles, for me at least in explaining Paul's position in Galatians, he moves against Jerusalem, just like the enemies of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. That is why in Acts, Paul, the abusive murderer, is God's missionary. In the same way that the king of Babylon is God's missionary, in the same way that Jesus here is being sent by his father against Jerusalem from the outside, against Rome from the outside. It's an invasion force, and it's beautiful and really touching because it's an undoing of the deportation to Babylon. This is it. The king, the Lord's Messiah, is recapturing the city from God's enemies. It's very beautiful, but it's not Zionism. It's not about a piece of real estate in Palestine. It's about God's instruction, because ultimately, the land belongs to God, which means that it doesn't belong to Israel, it doesn't belong to Canaan, it doesn't belong to Caesar. It belongs to all of God's children, including in Genesis, the other creatures that are min adama. Adam is one of many creatures from the ground, as Father Paul has been demonstrating again and again on our Tuesday series with him. So this is the thing. It looks haughty. It looks arrogant the same way that the procession of Caesar is haughty and arrogant. But insofar as it transfers that arrogance to the father of Jesus, it is actually a great leveling of human ego. In the Eastern tradition, Palm Sunday is the most Roman of holidays in the way that we use processions, and the way that we use symbols, the way that we use the banners, the way that we dress even. It's really the most Roman. And I think that's important because this really is using the symbols, even here in Matthew, of Roman power to grant that power to Jesus from the masses, right? And we know that Rome is very concerned about the power of the masses. But one thing that further shows some at least confusion to me. I don't know how the crowds are sorting this. Why is it that a moment ago they were talking about Jesus as if he was the son of David, and here they're talking about Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee? Is he the son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord, or is he Jesus the prophet of Nazareth, the prophet Jesus? Prophet? King? Are they using these terms flexibly? I'm guessing they're not using them technically. I'm guessing they're using them in the way that they want. The fact that he is a prophet here means that he comes with a teaching, a teaching from God. He was sent by God, which should be assumed if it's the son of David as well, because David was the one who was chosen by God to be king, even though he ultimately was a failure. The fact that he comes from Nazareth of Galilee, exactly, Father. I mean, he comes from the edge. He comes from the land of the Gentiles. He comes from the area that Assyria conquered way long ago, the same area that Hosea preached against before the Assyrians way back, as scholars would say, in the 8th century BCE. We have this king. 
we have this prophet coming from the periphery, coming from the edges, coming from the margin here, and he's coming with victory. He's coming with the grace of God as the people understand it, but he comes to upset the assumptions about power that both the Jew and the Gentile get confused. Look, people hearing the Gospel of Matthew are confused. When you talk about Son of David, even now, when you read this text in church, people make all kinds of assumptions. Is he a king? Is he a prophet? What does that mean? Do you understand king the way Matthew is emasculating kingship? Are you understanding that a prophet heralds the destruction of Jerusalem, or do you think a prophet heralds Israel's victory over Canaan? How are you understanding all of this? I think Matthew is playing with these terms in order to pressure the addressee to pay close attention to what's really going on. And of course, once you do, you realize that what Jesus is doing here is fundamentally different than what Julius Caesar did when he marched on Rome to consolidate his power. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.